Section 11 of The Plain Speaker This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee The Plain Speaker Opinions on Books, Men and Things by William Hazlitt Section 11 On the Old Age of Artists Mr. Nollikens died the other day at the age of eighty and left two hundred and forty thousand pounds behind him and the name of one of our best English sculptors. There was a great scramble among the legatees, a codicil to a will with large bequests unsigned, and that last triumph of the dead or dying over those who survive, hopes raised and defeated without a possibility of retaliation, or the smallest use in complaint. The king was at first said to be left residuary legatee, this would have been a fine instance of romantic and gratuitous homage to majesty in a man who all his lifetime could never be made to comprehend the abstract idea of the distinction of ranks or even of persons. He would go up to the Duke of York or Prince of Wales in spite of warning, take them familiarly by the button like common acquaintance, ask them how their father did, and express pleasure at hearing he was well, saying, When he was gone, we should never get such another. He once, when the old king was sitting to him for his bust, fairly stuck a pair of compasses into his nose to measure the distance from the upper lip to the forehead, as if he had been measuring a block of marble. His late majesty laughed heartily at this, and was amused to find that there was a person in the world ignorant of that vast interval which separated him from every other man. Nollikens, with all his loyalty, merely liked the man and cared nothing about the king, which was one of those mixed modes, as Mr. Locke calls them, of which he had no more idea than if he had been one of the cream-coloured horses, handled him like so much common clay, and had no other notion of the matter, but that it was his business to make the best bust of him he possibly could, and to set about it in the regular way. There was something in this plainness and simplicity that savoured, perhaps, of the hardness and dryness of his art, and of his own peculiar severity of manner. He conceived that one man's head differed from another's only as it was a better or worse subject for modelling, that a bad bust was not made into a good one by being stuck upon a pedestal or by any painting or varnishing, and that by whatever name he was called, a man's a man for all that. A sculptor's ideas must, I should guess, be somewhat rigid and inflexible, like the materials in which he works. Besides, Nollikens' style 
was comparatively hard and edgy. He had as much truth and character, but none of the polished graces or transparent softness of Chantry. He had more of the rough, plain, downright honesty of his art. It seemed to be his character. Mr. Northcote was once complimenting him on his acknowledged superiority. Aye, you made the best busts of anybody. I don't know about that, said the other. His eyes, though their orbs were quenched, smiling with a gleam of smothered delight. I only know I always tried to make them as like as I could. I saw this eminent and singular person one morning in Mr. Northcote's painting-room. He had then been for some time blind, and had been obliged to lay aside the exercise of his profession. But he still took a pleasure in designing groups, and in giving directions to others for executing them. He and Northcote made a remarkable pair. He sat down on a low stool, from being rather fatigued, rested with both hands on a stick, as if he clung to the solid and tangible, had an habitual twitch in his limbs and motions, as if catching himself in the act of going too far, in chiselling a lip or a dimple in a chin, was bolt upright, with features hard and square, but finely cut, a hooked nose, thin lips, an indented forehead, and the defect in his sight completed his resemblance to one of his own masterly busts. He seemed, by time and labour, to have wrought himself to stone. Northcote stood by his side, all air and spirit, stooping down to speak to him. The painter was in a loose morning gown, with his back to the light. His face was like a pale, fine piece of colouring, and his eye came out and glanced through the twilight of the past, like an old eagle looking from its eyrie in the clouds. In a moment they had lighted from the top of Mount Chenis in the Vatican, as when a vulture on Emmaus bread flies towards the springs of Ganges and Hydaspes Indian streams. These two fine old men, lighted with winged thoughts, on the banks of the Tiber, and there bathed and drank of the spirit of their youth. They talked of Titian and Bernini, and Northcote mentioned that when Rubiac came back from Rome, after seeing the works of the latter, and went to look at his own in Westminster Abbey, he said, By God, they looked like tobacco pipes. They then recalled a number of anecdotes of Day, a fellow student of theirs, of Barry and Fuseli. Sir Joshua and Burke and Johnson were talked of, the names of these great sons of memory were in the room, and they almost seemed to answer to them. Genius and fame flung a spell into the air, and by the force of blear illusion had drawn me on to my confusion, had I not been long ere this siren-proof. It is delightful, though painful, to hear two veterans in art thus talking over the adventures and studies of their youth when one feels that they are not quite mortal, that they have one imperishable part about them, 
and that they are conscious as they approach the furthest verge of humanity in friendly intercourse and tranquil decay that they have done something that will live after them the consolations of religion apart this is perhaps the only salve that takes out the sting of that sore evil death and by lessening the impatience and alarm at his approach often tempts him to prolong the term of his delay it has been remarked that artists or at least academicians live long it is but a short while ago that northcote nollikens west flaxman cosway and fuseli were all living at the same time in good health and spirits without any diminution of faculties all of them having long passed their grand climacteric and attained to the highest reputation in their several departments from these striking examples the diploma of a royal academician seems to be a grant of a longer lease of life among its other advantages in fact it is tantamount to the conferring a certain reputation in his profession and a competence on any man and thus supplies the wants of the body and sets his mind at ease artists in general poor devils i am afraid are not a long-lived race they break up commonly about forty their spirits giving way with the disappointment of their hopes of excellence or the want of encouragement for that which they have attained their plans disconcerted and their affairs irretrievable and in this state of mortification and embarrassment more or less prolonged and aggravated they are either starved or else drink themselves to death but your academician is quite a different sort of person he bears a charmed life that must not yield to duns or critics or patrons he is free of parnassus and claims all the immunities of fame in his lifetime he has but to paint as the sun has but to shine to baffle envious maligners he has but to send his pictures to the exhibition of somerset house in order to have them hung up he has but to dine once a year with the academy the nobility the cabinet minister and the members of the royal family in order not to want a dinner all the rest of the year shall hunger come near the man that has feasted with princes shall a bailiff tap the shoulder on which a marquis has familiarly leaned that has been dubbed with knighthood no even the fell sergeant death stands as it were aloof and he enjoys a kind of premature immortality in recorded honours and endless labours oh what golden hours are his in the short days of winter he husbands time the long evenings of summer still find him employed he paints on and takes no thought for to-morrow all is right in that respect his bills are regularly paid his drafts are duly honoured he has exercise for his body employment for his mind in his profession and without ever stirring out of his painting-room he studies as much of other things as he pleases he goes into the best company or talks with his sitters attends at the academy meetings and enters into their intrigues and cabals 
or stays at home, and enjoys the otium cum dignitate. If he is fond of reputation, fame watches him at work, and weaves a woof like Iris over his head. If he is fond of money, Plutus digs a mine under his feet. Whatever he touches becomes gold. He is paid half price before he begins, and commissions pour in upon commissions. His portraits are like, and his historical pieces fine, for to question the talents or success of a royal academician is to betray your own want of taste. Or if his pictures are not quite approved, he is an agreeable man, and converses well. Or he is a person of elegant accomplishments, dresses well, and is an ornament to a private circle. A man is not an academician for nothing. His life spins round on its soft axle. And in a round of satisfied desires and pleasing avocations, without any of the wear and tear of thought or business, there seems no reason why it should not run smoothly on to its last sand. Of all the academicians, the painters, or persons I have ever known, Mr. Northcote is the most to my taste. It may be said of him truly, age cannot wither nor custom stale his infinite variety. Indeed, it is not possible he should become tedious, since, even if he repeats the same thing, it appears quite new from his manner that breathes new life into it, and from his eye that is as fresh as the morning. How you hate any one who tells the same story, or anticipates a remark of his, it seems so coarse and vulgar, so dry and inanimate. There is something like injustice in this preference, but no, it is a tribute to the spirit that is in the man. Mr. Northcote's manner is completely extempore. It is just the reverse of Mr. Canning's oratory. All his thoughts come upon him unawares, and for this reason they surprise and delight you, because they have evidently the same effect upon his mind. There is the same unconsciousness in his conversation that has been pointed out in Shakespeare's dialogues. Or you are startled with one observation after another, as when the mist gradually withdraws from a landscape and unfolds objects one by one. His figure is small, shadowy, emaciated, but you think only of his face, which is fine and expressive. His body is out of the question. It is impossible to convey an adequate idea of the naivete and unaffected but delightful ease of the way in which he goes on, now touching upon a picture, now looking for his snuff-box, now alluding to some book he has been reading, now returning to his favourite art. He seems just as if he was by himself, or in the company of his own thoughts and makes you feel quite at home. If it is a member of Parliament, or a beautiful woman, or a child, or a young artist that drops in, it makes no difference. He enters into conversation with them in the same unconstrained manner as if they were inmates in his family. Sometimes you find him sitting on the floor like a schoolboy at play, turning over a set of old prints. And I was pleased to hear him say the other day, coming to one of some men putting off in a boat from a shipwreck, 
that is the grandest and most original thing i ever did this was not egotism but had all the beauty of truth and sincerity the print was indeed a noble and spirited design the circumstance from which it was taken happened to captain englefield and his crew he told northcote the story sat for his own head and brought the men from wapping to sit for theirs and these he had arranged into a formal composition till one geoffrey a conceited but clever artist of that day called in upon him and said oh that commonplace thing will never do it is like west you should throw them into an action something like this accordingly the head of the boat was reared up like a seahorse riding the waves and the elements put into commotion and when the painter looked at it the last thing as he went out of his room in the dusk of the evening he said that it frightened him he retained the expression in the faces of the men nearly as they sat to him it is very fine and truly english and being natural it was easily made into history there is a portrait of a young gentleman striving to get into the boat while the crew are pushing him off with their oars but at last he prevailed with them by his perseverance and entreaties to take him in they had only time to throw a bag of biscuits into the boat before the ship went down which they divided into a biscuit a day for each man dipping them into water which they collected by holding up their handkerchiefs in the rain and squeezing it into a bottle they were out sixteen days in the atlantic and got ashore at some place in spain where the great difficulty was to prevent them from eating too much at once so as to recover gradually captain englefield observed that he suffered more afterwards than at the time that he had horrid dreams of falling down precipices for a long while after that in the boat they told merry stories and kept up one another's spirits as well as they could and on some complaint being made of their distressed situation the young gentleman who had been admitted into their crew remarked nay we are not so badly off neither we are not come to eating one another yet thus whatever is the subject of discourse the scene is revived in his mind and every circumstance brought before you without affectation or effort just as it happened it might be called picture talking he has always some pat allusion or anecdote a young engraver came into his room the other day with a print which he had put into the crown of his hat in order not to crumple it and he said it had been nearly blown away several times in passing along the street you put me in mind said northcote of a bird-catcher at plymouth who used to put the birds he had caught into his hat to bring them home and one day meeting my father in the road he pulled off his hat to make him a low bow and all the birds flew away sometimes mr northcote gets to the top of a ladder to paint a palm tree or to finish a sky in one of his pictures and in this situation he listens very attentively to anything you tell him i was once mentioning some strange inconsistencies of our modern poets and on coming to one that exceeded the rest he descended the steps of the ladder one by one laid his palette and brushes deliberately on the ground and coming up to me said 
"'You don't say so. It's the very thing I should have supposed of them.' Yet these are the men that speak against Pope and Dryden. Never any sarcasms were so fine, so cutting, so careless as his. The grossest things from his lips seem an essence of refinement. The most refined become more so than ever. Hear him talk of Pope's epistle to Jervis, and repeat the lines. Yet should the graces all thy figures place, and breathe an air divine on every face, yet should the muses bid my numbers roll, strong as their charms, and gentle as their soul. With Zeus's Helen thy bridge water vie, and these be sung till Granville's Myra die. Alas, how little from the grave we claim! Thou but preserves a face, and I a name. Or let him speak of Boccaccio, and his story of Isabella and her pot of basil, in which she kept her lover's head and watered it with her tears, and how it grew and it grew and it grew. And you see his own eyes glisten, and the leaves of the basil tree tremble to his faltering accents. Mr. Fuseli's conversation is more striking and extravagant, but less pleasing and natural than Mr. Northcote's. He deals in paradoxes and caricatures. He talks allegories and personifications as he paints them. You are sensible of effort, without any repose, no careless pleasantry, no traits of character or touches from nature. Everything is laboured or overdone. His ideas are gnarled, hard, and distorted, like his features, his theories stalking and straddle-legged, like his gait, his projects aspiring and gigantic, like his gestures, his performance uncouth and dwarfish, like his person. His pictures are also like himself, with eyeballs of stone stuck in rims of tin, and muscles twisted together, like ropes or wires. Yet Fuseli is undoubtedly a man of genius, and capable of the most wild and grotesque combinations of fancy. It is a pity that he ever applied himself to painting, which must always be reduced to the test of the senses. He is a little like Dante or Ariosto, perhaps, but no more like Michelangelo, Raphael, or Correggio than I am. Nature, he complains, puts him out. Yet he can laugh at artists who paint ladies with iron lapdogs. And he describes the great masters of old in words or lines full of truth and glancing from a pen or tongue of fire. I conceive any person would be more struck with Mr. Fuseli at first sight, but would wish to visit Mr. Northcote oftener. There is a bold and startling outline in his style of talking, but not the delicate finishing or bland tone that there is in that of the latter. Whatever there is harsh or repulsive about him is, however, in a great degree carried off by his animated foreign accent and broken English, which give character where there is none, 
and soften its asperities where it is too abrupt and violent. Compared to either of these artists, West, the late president of the Royal Academy, was a thoroughly mechanical and commonplace person, a man of no mark or likelihood. He too was small, thin, but with regular, well-formed features and a precise, sedate, self-satisfied air. This in part arose from the conviction in his own mind that he was the greatest painter, and consequently the greatest man, in the world. Kings and nobles were common, everyday folks, but there was but one West in the many-peopled globe. If there was any one individual with whom he was inclined to share the palm of undivided superiority, it was with Bonaparte. When Mr. West had painted a picture, he thought it was perfect. He had no idea of anything in the art but rules, and these he exactly conformed to so that, according to his theory, what he did was quite right. He conceived of painting as a mechanical or scientific process, and had no more doubt of a face or a group in one of his high ideal compositions, being what it ought to be, than a carpenter has that he has drawn a line straight with a ruler and a piece of chalk, or than a mathematician has that the three angles of a triangle are equal to two right ones. When Mr. West walked through his gallery, the result of fifty years' labour, he saw nothing, either on the right or the left, to be added or taken away. The account he gave of his own pictures, which might seem like ostentation or rodomontade, had a sincere and infantine simplicity in it. When someone spoke of his St. Paul shaking off the serpent from his arm, at Greenwich Hospital, I believe, he said, A little burst of genius, sir. West was one of those happy mortals who had not an idea of anything beyond himself or his own actual powers and knowledge. I once heard him say in a public room that he thought he had quite as good an idea of Athens from reading the travelling catalogues of the place as if he lived there for years. I believe this was strictly true, and that he would have come away with the same slender, literal, unenriched idea of it as he went. Looking at a picture of Rubens, which he had in his possession, he said with great indifference, What a pity that this man wanted expression! This natural self-complacency might be strengthened by collateral circumstances of birth and religion. West as a native of America, might be supposed to own no superior in the commonwealth of art. As a Quaker, he smiled with sectarian self-sufficiency at the objections that were made to his theory or practice in painting. He lived long in the firm persuasion of being one of the elect among the sons of fame, and went to his final rest in the arms of immortality. Happy error! Enviable old man. Flaxman is another living and eminent artist, who is distinguished by success in his profession and by a prolonged and active old age. He is diminutive in person, like the others. I know little of him, but that he is an elegant sculptor and a profound mystic. 
This last is a character common to many other artists in our days. Lutherborg, Cosway, Blake, Sharp, Varley, etc., who seem to relieve the literalness of their professional studies by voluntary excursions into the regions of the preternatural, pass their time between sleeping and waking, and whose ideas are like a stormy night, with the clouds driven rapidly across, and the blue sky and stars gleaming between. Cosway is the last of these I shall mention. At that name I pause, and must be excused, if I consecrate to him a petit souvenir in my best manner, for he was Fancy's child. What a fairy palace was his, of specimens of art, antiquarianism, and vertu, jumbled all together in the richest disorder. Dusty, shadowy, obscure, with much left to the imagination, how different from the finical, polished, petty, modernised air of some collections we have seen, and with copies of the old masters, cracked and damaged, which he touched and retouched with his own hand, and yet swore they were the genuine, the pure originals. All other collectors are fools to him. They go about with painful anxiety to find out the realities. He said he had them, and in a moment made them of the breath of his nostrils and of the fumes of a lively imagination. His was the crucifix that Abelard prayed to, a lock of Eloise's hair, the dagger with which Felton stabbed the Duke of Buckingham, the first finished sketch of the Jocunda, Titian's large colossal profile of Peter Aretine, a mummy of an Egyptian king, a feather of a phoenix, a piece of Noah's Ark. Were the articles authentic? What matter? His faith in them was true. He was gifted with a second sight in such matters. He believed whatever was incredible. Fancy bore sway in him, and so vivid were his impressions that they included the substances of things in them. The agreeable and the true with him were one. He believed in Swedenborgianism. He believed in animal magnetism. He had conversed with more than one person of the Trinity. He could talk with his lady at Mantua through some fine vehicle of sense as we speak to a servant downstairs through a conduit pipe. Richard Cosway was not the man to flinch from an ideal proposition. Once, at an academy dinner, when some question was made whether the story of Lambert's leap was true, he started up and said it was, for he was the person that performed it. He once assured me that the knee-pan of King James I in the ceiling at Whitehall was nine feet across. He had measured it in concert with Mr. Cipriani, who was repairing the figures. He could read in the Book of the Revelations without spectacles, and foretold the return of Bonaparte from Elba and from St. Helena. His wife, the most ladylike of English women, being asked in Paris what sort of a man her husband was, made answer, Toujours riant, toujours gay. This was his character. He must have been of French extraction. His soul appeared to possess the life of a bird, and such was the jauntiness of his air and manner, that to see him sit to have his half-boots laced on, you would fancy, by the help of a figure, that, 
instead of a little withered elderly gentleman, it was Venus attired by the graces. His miniatures and whole-length drawings were not merely fashionable, they were fashion itself. His imitations of Michelangelo were not the thing. When more than ninety he retired from his profession, and used to hold up the palsied hand that had painted lords and ladies for upwards of sixty years, and smiled with unabated good humour at the vanity of human wishes. Taken with all his faults and follies, we scarce shall look upon his like again. Why should such persons ever die? It seems hard upon them, and us. Care fixes no sting in their hearts, and their persons present no mark to the foeman. Death in them seizes upon living shadows. They scarce consume vital air. Their gross functions are long at an end. They live but to paint, to talk, or think. Is it that the vice of age, the miser's fault, gnaws them? Many of them are not afraid of death, but of coming to want, and having begun in poverty, are haunted with the idea that they shall end in it, and so die, to save charges. Otherwise they might linger on for ever, and defy augury. End of section 11